So the upcoming episode is our first opportunity to have two different guests on at the same time, and they're father and son. Uh, Patrick Casey, uh, who's someone I've known for a while, was director of golf at Brentwood Country Club for 20 years, and then in the last year he moved up to the assistant general manager position um, overall at the club. Uh, His dad, Joe, uh, has been a PGA pro for a very long time um, and uh, is still active uh, at a course in Palm Desert. Uh, Patrick and, and, uh, and Joe come from Western New York, and I think you'll find it to be an interesting conversation to hear from Joe, what it was like to uh, be a PGA pro um, back in the day um, and then in the 30s and 40s. And um, he's had quite a long career and met quite a few people along the way. And Patrick um, uh, followed in his footsteps, although as you'll hear, Patrick uh, became much more involved with the PGA organization itself and ended up leading the Southern California PGA so a fun conversation with Joe Casey and Patrick Casey, his son, uh, about their lives uh, in golf coming up next. Okay, welcome to another edition of The Golf Guy, and um, I've got a two-for-one special today. Um, I've got both uh, Patrick Casey, who uh, is uh, someone I've known at Brentwood for, for a couple of decades now, and his dad, Joe, who um, is also a longtime PGA member um, and and goes back, um, uh, gosh, I probably more than 50 year member, if I'm looking at my math right here of the PGA. Um, so Joe, let me maybe start with you and and maybe let's talk a little bit about um, kind of how you got your start in the game and and what life was like um, uh, getting uh, in the Western. New York PGA, which is, I know, um, the part of uh, part where you uh, started with the game. When I was having a nice meal at home and the parish priest stopped by and said he needed a caddy. I was 10 years old. And so he took wow. me. Uh, it was kind of disastrous because uh, it was my first day on a holiday week in July 5th, 1946. And the golf pro really let me have it for showing up as a as a know nothing on the busiest day of the year. And uh, it was Ray Feller who became uh, my main mentor for many, many years. But that's how I got started. Parish Priest took me, 1946. That's fantastic. That's great. So did you start playing in, in addition to caddying? And what was it? What, what were you doing then? Well, in those days, uh, caddies could only play on Monday from, from sunup till noon. And uh, no okay. swing. Club, but while you were a kid, and you couldn't swing the members' club. You couldn't look for balls. Mr. Feller was very strict. And uh, this was Ray Feller, and uh, he was a great player. When the um, pros used to come to Rochester to play in those days because they had exhibitions, they didn't have all the lucrative contracts they have today. And he'd always be right. paired to play against these fellows like Sears and, and the many stars of the 1930s. Right, right. No, the PGA Tour was nothing like it was now. I know reading and talking, you know, people people had other jobs too, right? I mean, even the touring pros, I mean, they couldn't really make a living, you know, doing, uh, they have to, ex- as you say, exhibitions. I mean, the tournament golf wasn't like 
anything like it is today in terms of, of living, right? No, but those fellows had a, a certain quality that's missing today in the players. They had personalities. I mean, uh, yeah. nice personalities. They were strict and they were well-dressed. Uh, I wore a shirt and tie. I wore a shirt and tie for many years until 1970 at my, at my golf shops, even though there were small nine-hole clubs. And we always called the members by Mr. and Mrs. And uh, when I, the, the guys would get after me for, for getting after it, for calling them by their last name. But I got so when a new member would come in, I, I wouldn't have to call him by his Mr. or Mrs. But there was a nice little, nice little tidbit there. Yeah, no, it was, it was a different level uh, for sure back then. So, um, where was, so, so talk about, um, you know, so you're caddy, you play on Mondays. Um, and when did you actually start um, uh, getting involved with the PGA and, and, and serving as a, uh, at a club? Well, uh, you know, I, I caddied at, from 10 to 14 and then at 14 I went to the golf shop and I was in the golf shop till I got out of high school. Then I went to Marine Corps for three years. Then I went back to work for the same pro Ray Feller until he left in, in 1960. He was at Hornell from 46 to 1960. And he was a very good friend of uh, Walter Hagen. When Hagen oh, was- Oh, wow. The, so Ray learned a lot of his stuff from Hagen and Hagen passed it on to Ray and Ray passed it down to me and I passed it on to Patrick. It's kind of a chain of events. That's and, cool. So did you, did you ever get to meet Hagen? Did he ever come around to the club? That, that was interesting. My last year in the Marine Corps, Ray, who I never called Ray, I always called him Mr. Feller, even though we were very close. Uh, in the fall of, of 1956, he wanted me to come to the annual meeting, which was in Dunedin, Florida. And I was stationed okay. in Island, South Carolina, all my three years of the military at the Marines. And so I went down to Dunedin. And uh, at that particular thing, there were all the, the, uh, the first time they've ever had a trunk show, the guys had the, in the back of their cars, the salesmen had the, the goods. And uh, that was the first time they ever had the merchandise shows right around that time, 1956. But anyways, uh, I met all the pros. <laughs> Tommy Armour was there and, and Sneed and all those fellows. And guys that went way back, one of the guys that really impressed me was a guy named Tom Creevy who won the PGA championship at 19 years right. of age. And right. uh, the merit, and Ray, Ray, even if he knew the guys, he would always come up and say, hi, Jimmy, or hi, John, or that. And he'd introduce me to the guys. And uh, yeah. that was, but anyways, we're at a, a tavern. It was a bar of the, uh, of the hotel we were at, and Hagen was at the bar. And I sat down and, and talked with him for quite a few minutes. I can't remember the exact things we talked about, but it was upstate New York because he was from Rochester. And right. the funny thing to me, when Hagen left the bar and the bar was jammed and he went out to the patio, everybody in the bar left and went on the patio with him. Yeah. <laughs> he was the main guy and they, they followed him all the way around. And so that was nice. And uh, Hagen told me at that time, that he had never had a cigarette or a drink until he was 26 or 27 years old. So all those stories wow. about him being, you know, a drunkard and stuff like that aren't really true. He might've drank a lot in later years and he was a great athlete. He was a, a great baseball player and he, it was a toss up between going to baseball or golf. 
for Hagen. But I wow. always, hey, I, I got so, when I was reading the books and stuff, the history books, I got so I got like uh, Varden and, uh, and Jones. And they were my guys, and I'd always ask Ray who was the best golfer, and he always said Hagen. He always said yeah. Hagen. And you know, when you got reading about it, he was he was uh, he was the guy. A phenomenal record, particularly in the PGA and the match play. I mean, all those consecutive years he won, um, no one's touched that. I mean, he was amazing. But even Hagen had to go around the world. I mean, he had to keep winning in order to make a living for the exhibitions. Yeah. The exhibitions wouldn't have been anything; it'd been like having. Good Joe Casey and Patrick out playing against a couple of guys. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they would just tour all over, right? I mean, these exhibitions back then, right? And just and and they'd go to a club and they someone would they get paid and that was how they kept their living. That's right. And even uh, in the early '60s, when I was pro at Hornell Country Club, there was a Wilson golf salesman who was a good friend of Ray's, and he, he became a friend of mine, and he'd bring the different top lady players to my club that played Patty Berg and uh, Betsy yeah. Ross was big at that time. But I remember uh, Patty came to the club and uh, when she came up the drive, we lived on a, or the, the course was on the top of the hill. In fact, I didn't know there was a flat lie until I left Cornell, New York, because everything was on a side hill. All your shots were side hill, uphill, downhill. But anyways, when, when Patty came up the driveway, and she saw somebody there taking money for the for the men's uh, golf association. She turned around and left, <laughs> but the Wilson salesman brought her back, and she put out. She was known for her exhibitions. She was a great yeah. player. She was the queen of of like a nightclub person, and she'd hit shots, and the people go ooh, ooh like that. And tell us how you did that, Patty. And she was great. She says, "If you want to know, see Joe. If you want to know." <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Support your PGA Pro. That's good. It was phenomenal. Yeah, great. That's great. Um, God, Wilson had some great play. Wasn't Sneed with Wilson back then? I'm trying to remember. I thought he was. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, his, but, his whole career yeah. was there. Yeah. Yeah. Sneed. Yeah. Yeah, Wilson was, I mean, Wilson had a great stable of players, back, I mean, for many years back then. But, um, wow, that's amazing. Um, so, um, so, who, so, I mean, did you said you mentioned, you mentioned Snead and Armour, you know, that you met as well. I mean, who else would come through Rochester that you got to see on exhibitions back then besides Hagen that, you, well, you know, the that Ray Feller knew? Started, uh, stopped, you know, right into the, right after the Second World War, pretty much. Because I then, they, okay. So the exhibitions were through the 30s and maybe the first part of the war years, but they stopped after okay. the war. We didn't have any exhibitions anymore. The got guys, it, got it. Me. Yeah. Um, we, the, um, yeah. There's Sammy Rosetta, who won the 1950 Men's Amateur Champion, U.S. Amateur. He was from yeah. Rochester, New York. And there were a lot of great players in, in this section, as there were throughout the country. But, you know, the money wasn't there, and the guys stayed at, at the club year-round, and they'd venture out, you know, when the PGA came along or the U.S. Open came along. But those, those are the only ones they tried to go for. Right, right. Now, that makes sense. Um, so you were so, so you were at Cornell. I'm trying to go, go back to your history. So you were at Cornell from when to when, golf course? Uh, Hornell, H. Oh, H, I'm sorry, Hornell. 
he would make that that air because Hagen made the same thing. He said he said to me, "Where are you from?" I says, "Hornell, New York." Oh, he says, "Hornell." I said, "Very well." So you and Hagen are in great company there. That, 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 I'm in good company if I'm with Walter. Absolutely. So, anyways, I was at Hornell uh, from uh, well, counting my cat years, but uh, I was the head pro there, 62, 63, 64, and then I went to a, uh, a course owned in Batavia by a guy named Parker Terry, and uh, his dad bought the built the course for him in 1930 because Parker wanted to go on tour. And the father didn't want him to go on tour. He, he, he said, you stay home. And he says, uh, I'll give you the land and you build your own golf course. So he did park it there. So I was with Parker Terry for one year, Terry Hills country. Okay. Maybe in New York. That's where my wife and I got married. Okay, we, great. We eloped, which is a great story because. Uh, oh, let me hear. What, tell me about that. What happened? I'd love to hear this. We didn't make much money. In fact, my starting salary at Hornell was $25 a week. And I oh, did wow. such a job, they doubled it the next year and gave me $50 a week. But uh, in Batavia, uh, I was from Hornell, New York again, not Cornell. But in Hornell, uh, my wife, Dolores Kinney, who was from the other side of the tracks, I, was on, I came from the bloody fifth ward. And she lived on the other side of the tracks. But anyways, we got along. <laughs> and Batavia, when I got uh, was working for Parker Terry, we decided to get married. And we had to go through a lot of rigmarole because I was a Catholic and we changed diocese. And uh, we had to have a lot, lot of interviews and stuff. And my only day off was Monday. So uh, I didn't have much money. So we didn't invite anybody to the wedding. We said, you know, if I can't have all my friends and relatives, I, I don't want right. to do it. We uh, we got married on uh, on a Monday, which was my day off, and the pro gave me Tuesday off, so I had a, a one day honeymoon. And my the fellow that stood up for me was Ray Feller and his wife. Once again, Mister Feller is right there, right with me all the time. But anyways, after the wedding, uh, on I waited to uh, church. Batavia was about thirty miles from Hornell, New York, and we were on our way to church eight o'clock in the morning. And the main thoroughfare, a car came in, and I says, holy murder, that looks like uh, your mother, Dolores. And I looked at it, and she says, I couldn't get married without telling my mother. <laughs> so I'm almost, <laughs> even before I'm, I'm married, it looks like an elopement coming up, uh, but uh, an annulment too. So with uh, Dolores' mother was my mother and my two sisters, uninvited to the wedding. Now here I couldn't invite anybody else, and these four ladies show up. But uh, we had a wonderful mass. There was just the priest, two older boys, Mr. and Mrs. Feller, and the four invited guests. But after the uh, wedding, Dolores and I went to Rochester, New York, another 30 miles away, and we watched the big three play an exhibition. Nicholas Palmer. Ah. So that was... Uh, right, Nicholas. That's fantastic. Were, were they, did they play at Oak Hill, or were, were the Rochester Country Club? Or were... Right, yeah, Oak Hill. <clears throat> Yeah, they were they were the thing back then, right? I always thought Billy Casper got a little bit of short shrift because he, he was great. Did. But great, and uh, his performance against Palmer uh, was one of the legendary stories about him beating him there after being down and coming back and stuff. Oh, I mean at Olympic in the U.S. Open, you mean? And yeah. and yeah. Well, after Batavia, I went to a Silver Lake Country Club, 
which was a beautiful course located on the Lake Silver Lake. And uh, it was called Yacht and Country Club because uh, people used to have their sailboats there. And uh, it was quite a problem because you'd have golf tournaments and the sailors uh, wanted to sail. Uh, but that was a dry, dry club. And uh, what really? I mean, but they couldn't, they couldn't uh, sell alcohol. Liquor, yeah. Alcohol, but yeah. The, the line was right between the golf course and, and uh, so people used to keep all the booze in their lockers. And they, they had a stirt that would, uh, would serve the setups for them and stuff like that. So there's just as much drinking as, as, as if they could drink anyways. So yeah. after, uh, after Silver Lake, and of course, when I was at Silver Lake, that's where Patrick and, and Joseph, Bad Joe, the other guy at Joe, uh, they were born there at Perry. And then I moved on to, um, to Livingston Country Club in Geneseo, New York. Okay. And I, I was there for 19 years. The funny thing, when oh, wow. I was Livingston County, I was the only pro in Livingston County. And every club that I was at was only nine holes. Then when I left New York State and came out to California, they all became 18-hole clubs, which I thought was was unusual. I don't know how they're doing now because I haven't uh, tracked on them. But I do ask That's Patrick interesting. to get an update. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is interesting. So you were there 19 years. So did you have – so what was what was being a, uh, a club pro like back then? I mean, did you have assistance, and what was what was sort of it all like back then? And it was I couldn't afford assistance. I couldn't have I couldn't have assistance. So I had a large family, so they could do the work for me. Four boys and one girl. So 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 Pat, the boys helped you out in the shop and everything, and the helped you out around. The boys were not allowed in the shop. They did all the outside dirty work. They did the, oh, like the bags, the bag room and stuff for the members getting the bags and everything. Or yeah, everything the back room. They, the only one that was allowed in the shop was my daughter Anne Marie. Uh, and so my, she was my shop gal before they were called shop gals. And Anne Marie, uh, all my children benefited from this because, in fact, I'm going to have Patrick send me an article about, about these golfing days at uh, Livingston. Uh, when we'd have alternate shot tournaments, there were a lot of widows at the club. So all my yeah. kids fill in as the partner of the, uh, of the members. Wow. Okay. That's and, neat. Uh, and, uh, well, what was nice about that, the boys got, uh, and, and, and Marie also, we could uh, be around an adult, and the adult would have a partner for the, for the tournament. And they always had good times. And uh, it, it brought out the, their personalities. So all my kids, yeah. and they're not all angels by far, none of them. <laughs> and uh, I came from a family of nine. And uh, oh, wow. These guys. These guys, uh, they didn't have it easy, but uh, they, they were trained good and they, they worked hard and, and uh, they, uh, they benefit from being around the club because their personalities and the personalities have helped them in life. Uh, yep. Anne Marie became the general manager of a golf club, a private golf club in Reno, New York, Hidden Valley. And oh, wow. uh, she was outstanding. And uh, Johnny, uh, another boy we call him, uh, he was a great hockey player. And he was good at every sport. He had great rhythm, and uh, he's uh, and a firefighter now. And he was he had beautiful rhythm. And my son Joey, Bad Joe, he uh, he was using the cross-handed putting method before it was known as cross-handed putting. And oh, when wow. he would, when he would play golf, 
uh, and this is where the uh, personality came out. The little kids loved him so much. He had a bigger gallery than Palmer did, even though he was about 17 years old playing. All these little kids would be following him around the course. And uh, Jim, Jim was a, a kind of a volatile guy, volatile personality. And uh, he, he was a big hitter. And he's a doctor of psychology now in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. But they all play golf. They all have their own styles. I never, you know, I gave them a few little tips, but I, I didn't uh, overcoach them or anything like that. And so uh, I like the kids. And I like playing golf with them because they just get up there and hit the ball. Of course, Patrick's right. getting a little more now. He's got the range finder and stuff like that. So, <laughs> you know, that's a little out of my league. <laughs> all the technology, right? Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so, um, you were, uh, so you were, you were trying to sort of get the date. So you stayed, you were in Western New York before you moved out to the California, you moved out here when roughly? Uh, not, not roughly. I moved out here in 1989. 89. Okay. So you were, you were there for a long time and in, in stayed in Western New York. And yeah, um, uh, when I was born now, 62, three and four, uh, I became a PGA head pro officially in, in 1963. Mm-hmm. In those days, we didn't have to take schooling. And if you served under a PGA head pro class A for five years, you could get your membership. So I served. Yeah, it, was, under- it was like a pure apprenticeship, right? Is sort of the way it was. You didn't have yes. all these courses. If you yeah. served five years under the tough pros that were in those days, you should be good enough to be a pro. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and sounds like Ray Feller was a great mentor to you. I mean, just hearing you talk about him. Absolutely. And then uh, he was great. And he was a very tough guy. He was a German uh, on one side and Irish on the other. He, he used that German <laughs> stuff to be tough on me. And then he'd use the Irish stuff to soften me up. <laughs> <laughs> That is a, that is a good combination. Um, did you play much in the sections at all, or or, or was it mostly little, just tending to the club? Yeah, very little, um, because I only had uh, Monday off. I only had Monday. Yeah. I could have been a player probably, but uh, I, I discovered if you know Hogan was my hero in those days. Yeah, uh, Hogan was my guy because 1946 when I could realize what was going on in golf. Hogan was the guy. And so I right. wanted to be like him, but when I discovered I couldn't be as good as him, I, I gave it up. Uh, Jones retired at 28 from competitive golf. So did I, both 28. <laughs> well, Hogan, no, no, the, the Hogan sort of set a standard. I don't think anyone's quite matched, but um, so you were there. I mean, you as you were growing up, right? So he had his horrible accident in 49 and, and you saw the whole, you know, the pre-accident Hogan, the post-accident, the U.S. Open wins. I mean, he was kind of became legendary in the, in, and then went to Carnoustie, right, to sort of win the one shot at the British Open, wins at the one shot. He was amazing. Yeah, uh, he had a great career. And, uh, you know, he was focused on, on his golf game and uh, practice and stuff. And I was telling Patrick the other day, we didn't have, most of the clubs I was at didn't have a driving range. So people didn't practice i mean they just go out and play oh, wow okay and uh, yeah. in fact porky oliver i don't know if you ever heard that name porky oh i know i know the name sure yeah he would stop by hornell a lot because that was his one of our members went south every winter and he brought porky back with him to be the head pro 
<laughs> at Hornell Country Club, a little dinky course, a little dinky nine-hole course. And uh, Oliver, that was in 1939. And the following year, uh, Oliver wins, or almost wins the Open when he got disqualified at, uh, in Cleveland for going out because of the storm, he beat us. Did you remember right. that story? I, I've, I've heard the story, yeah. So uh, Porky on his way to the Canadian Open would stop by every year and, and play around the golf uh, for the members and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, you saw you saw all the greats, um, that's for sure. Um, did, you, did you sort of interact much with Craig Harmon or Jack Lumpkin? I'm just thinking of some of the other notables from that area of um, the PGA. Well, there was a salesman used to come by, and John Manley, he worked for, for Spalding. He had a great uh, a brother that was a great golfer by the name of Hobart Manley from the East Coast. But John would like to come out in the, in the country. And uh, I was in the country, like, you know, Hornell was a little town, 15,000. Yeah. Geneseo was uh, where I was there for 19 years. That was probably about uh, how long? Seven thousand people there, and yeah, uh, they call them the peripheral clubs because you could just see them out of the corner of your eyes. But he would do more business in those little peripheral clubs than at Oak Hill and stuff. There was a little bit of uh, the, the top pros didn't really have much to do with the smaller pros. You know, I mean, it was yeah. they they had their own little gatherings and stuff. And they wouldn't look, work the long hours that the, the guys out worked. I'd go to uh, work right after the sun came up and, and quit when it right. got. Not that I minded it. I loved it. You know what I mean? Every minute of the day I loved because it was uh, there was something about it. That was like when I was uh, started caddying. Coming from a family of nine, we never had anything extra. We always had meals. But, uh, right. you know. Christmas when you wanted a baseball or something that you got a, a shirt or something like that, a stocking cap. <laughs> you never had it. So when I started caddying, I got cash in my pocket for the first time, even right. though only a right. little bit. And I didn't keep all that money because I had to turn it over to my mother. She was the banker, but she left. It didn't cost much in those days. And uh, so us guys in, in, uh, that worked a lot of hours. I don't think the guys like Harmon and those guys, they had a lot of assistance. I had, I didn't have any assistance. Yeah, yeah. I worked the job myself, always. And even when yeah. I was at uh, Palm Desert Greens in, uh, in Southern California, Palm Desert, it was, I just had a staff of three, Dolores, who was also my buffer. You know, everybody hated the, the guy because I had to make the rules at those places. So they'd always go to her crying about me. But she was my buffer, and then I had another guy that did the book work. So there was only three of us. And this was a course that was putting out four or 500 people a day at, at Tom Dusty Green. Wow. A double, wow. double, there were so many members. That's the busiest That's a course. hard job. You didn't have much help. That's a big uh, operation to sort of be running. I had quality help because they were well trained. Yeah. The course was well trained in the golf field. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So that must have been so. So no, that's that's interesting. So you were Palm Desert um, for for a while, right? I mean, number of years. years. Fourteen years at Palm Desert Greens, and uh, we had uh, there were fourteen hundred ninety-two homes there, eighteen hundred. Wow! And each home, once you bought a home, this course is still there. Once you bought a home, you could have three golfers. 
in that home. There were no, that was it. You didn't have a membership. Once you bought a home, you had three golfers. Now, if, if you take three times almost 1,500 homes, you had all those golf, that's almost 5,000 golfers you would have at a 18-hole course. But a lot of those people didn't play golf. So we realistically had about 1,500 people that played golf at that course. 500 of them that played frequently. So it was it was a madhouse there uh, from morning till night. That that is such a huge number. It must have been crazy. <laughs> I mean, in terms of people playing all day long. Uh, we had a double shotgun, 144 each shotgun, and uh, and you know it was wow, a short. Okay. Have a little frost in the morning, and in the desert, you know, it's only really warm from 10 to 2. And either side of that, it gets a little chilly. So. Yeah. Uh, it was fun, though. It was, uh, I always like working around golf. That's why I'm still working. Yeah, Patrick tells me that. I mean, that's fantastic that you're still doing that. They're going to have to drag me out. And actually, I probably, have, I probably haven't hit my... I, this is not the end for me by any means. I mean, I'm still going. I'm, I'm not like uh, Colin Powell, who lost a fire in his belly. I still got the fire in my belly. I, I, I can tell. Um, tell. Tell me about sort of the, the historian aspects of things. I know you collect stuff and books, and how did you get into that, and, and what's that been like? Well, you know, I always heard the stories about Ray. And Ray always told about the exhibitions and, and stuff like that, but, you know, I, I'd usually be vacuuming the shop or dusting something. He, he, you know, he didn't let up on me. You know, when I went to work in the morning, uh, at Hornell Country Club, he, he was pro manager, so he wasn't up at the, the crack of dawn. So I'd be there and I'd open the shop and I'd clean the shop up. And then I also had the locker room. Pro shop wasn't my only thing. I had the locker room. Oh, wow. Boy. Ray would come down. And once he came down and started telling the stories to the guys, I couldn't listen to the stories. He sent me off upstairs to do the cleaning of the upstairs. You know, he never let up on me. Never let up on me. So, but once I finally got all my cleaning done, I get back in the shop for the tail end of the stories. And he told about all the guys and, you know, I wished I could remember them all, but it was so, so long ago that uh, I've forgotten most of them. But then yeah. in, uh, in 1980, I'll never forget it. There was a member when I was at Livingston Country Club, uh, there was a fellow who was a librarian. He says a new book came out by Dick Miller, Triumphant Journey about Bobby Jones. So I read that book and I loved it. And that's really how I got started into, the, into that because I, it opened up, even though Ray had been talking about it, once you see it and have a chance to, to digest it instead of having to sweep the floor, you know, then you can enjoy it more. Right, right. You know, golf has such a rich history of books and, and authors and great, great, great books. I mean, you, it sounds like you have a great collection. I do, I do. My wife keeps moaning about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have mine. I, I'm not allowed to store them anywhere other than my one room, my little office where I am now, because uh, I would I would have trouble with my wife if I started spreading them out over the house as well. Um, but uh, no, it's great. It's a great history. Um, so Patrick is obviously has had a great uh, run in the game as well. So that must have really been fun for you to see your son kind of following your footsteps a little bit, right? And become a PGA pro. Not really. I was kind of a punitive parent. You know, I, uh, I had you were to, tough. Okay. 
I like I had I like that. That's why the boys weren't allowed in the shop. You know, they had to yeah. stay out. But uh, outside of Ray Feller, you know, I've known a lot of pros. I've seen a lot of guys in action, Harmon and, and the other guys at the good Buffalo clubs. But Patrick's the best pro I, I know, best qualified. And I'm, I'm not saying that because he's my son. I'm saying that as an objective yeah. bystander. Ray was the best. Ray was the best. But Patrick has the, uh, the knowledge and stuff, you know, from working around it. Uh, it's a different kind of academic type of golf pro you know what i mean we work by the seat of our pants these guys know what they're doing well he had opportunities right i mean he went to school and actually focused on it right from the beginning well i was the kind of guy patrick loves all that uh, ray feller liked that political stuff who he'd, he'd go to he was many time uh, pga president at the western new york section and he right, never right meetings and I'm just the opposite. I don't like any of that stuff. In fact, I used to have the guy sign in for me so I could skip the meetings, <laughs> which would be no, <laughs> which would be a no, no. So you can see how opposite Patrick and I are on, on that stuff there. You know, I don't, yeah. I'd be at the shop cleaning a set of clubs and listen to the guys argue about the, about things that didn't mean much. Right. No, Patrick, Patrick has uh, been very involved in that. Another interesting story you might know, there was a fellow from Canada that used to bring down what I would do when I had clothing at the shop. Uh, At the end of the year, there was a guy by the name of Vince Pampa that had Chai Lai Country Club. And Vince owned the club. And he had the biggest uh, golf business in in the area. And so I'd take all my clothing up at the end of the year and trade them for used clubs and hickory clubs and all that stuff. So I had... I didn't have clothing sitting around getting dusty. I had an inventory of clubs. I could either sell or really like myself. But there was a fellow who used to come down from Canada, and he'd bring uh, books and golf clubs down, and he'd trade for the stuff that I had in the shop, the clubs yeah. that I picked up from Pampa. So that's how I acquired a lot of my books and, and clubs that way, too. He's still around, Mike cool. Lake. And he was an expert in all kinds of the uh, putters the George Lowe putters and the 1200 putters and all those fellows. Oh, the George Lowe, those Wilson models, those were famous, right? Yeah. He had a ton of them. Yeah. George Lowe. There's another one with lots of stories of George Lowe. Uh, what, what, he was a character. Lots of characters back there. As you, you said at the beginning, I mean, they had more personality um, and they were, they were real characters. I mean, you, 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 I mean, you know, you mentioned demerit, you know, some of the other ones, I mean, they had a lot of, they had a lot of personality. Yeah, no, I guess you couldn't get away with it today. I mean, everything is big business. I mean, these guys are playing for, you know, lots of money. And the other day, the guys didn't make that kind of money. You know, even Ray, as great as Ray was, he, he never made any money. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is big business. But I, I, I think your point is really well taken that, you know, you look back in those days and you just they just had much more identified personalities. Today, there's a lot of, sameness on the tour you're right i mean it's big business no one wants to rock the boat and all that stuff but it was i mean reading about the pros back in the day you know you're talking about the 50s and stuff i mean it just it's you know tommy bolt i mean all these other folks it just seemed like they had a lot more personality yeah we, we don't have that anymore i guess you couldn't get away with it i mean they make a big fuss now about these guys having temper tantrums and stuff but bolt was throwing clubs uh he ran out of clubs. He threw so many of them. Right. I, I don't know if that story is true, but, the, you know, that funny story with his caddy, 
giving him the club and says, why, yeah, that's not the right club. And he says, that's the only one you have left in your bag or something like that. I mean, there's lots well, of funny stories about that. <laughs> he was a great player. Paul <laughs> was a great player. You know, oh, and, yeah. Uh, he won an open. He won an open. He had all the shots. Oh, we won the open right at Southern Hills. That was a brutal U.S. Open. I mean, that was an impressive win. I mean, he had a beautiful swing. Just a beautiful swing. Tommy um, Bolt. No, I agree. Tommy Bolt was great. Um, let me bring Patrick in a little bit here to join you. Um, so, Patrick, so what a what a fantastic career your dad has had in the game, and so great talking to him. So, but you, but you um, growing up with the, with that, and you sort of from the very beginning, right, knew that this was a career you wanted to do. And, and in fact, if I'm remembering right. You know, even in college, you know, you were focused on sort of a career in this, right? Absolutely. Obviously being exposed, you know, at every level of a country club, you know, from as early as I can remember, you know, had a huge influence. And obviously my dad is my number one mentor, but um, there's several mentors that I've just developed in, in life and in my business from from the game of golf. So it's just been a huge part. And when I knew I wanted to be a club professional, which I realized really early on, um, you know, then I just, everything I did from that, that point forward was focused on that. Right. So, um, talk about kind of, so you, I, you sort of went to school and sort of, you know, focused on that and how did you, what was your start after that in the game? Where did you get your start? Um, you know, in terms of being in a club and, and maybe describe that if you could. Well, at Livingston, I did did everything. I, I with my dad, I worked in the you know kind of the bag room was my folk was my specialty. But um, I also did work on the golf course grounds. Um, our, another mentor I had, Sammy Battaglia, who was the club manager and golf course superintendent, gave me the opportunity to work on the golf course staff as well, um, as well as um, doing different projects. I was able to build bunkers, renovate bunkers, do all kinds of things, wow. and then. I I also worked for him in the, um, in the dining area. I was a dishwasher for him and did a lot of little projects for him. So, um, that's kind of where I got started. And then, you know, when I, when it got time to get ready to go to school and I was looking at different options, I was, um, I was a pretty good athlete. I played, you know, golf and swimming were my two main sports. And back okay. then play golf in the summer and swim in the winter. And so I was kind of looking at, wanting to continue both of those. And so I looked at various schools, uh, Ferris State University, which was located in Big Rapids, Michigan, um, the state and where, uh, you know, the great Walter Hagen ended up retiring. And then you know, yeah, eventually right. when he right. died, he Cadillac, Michigan. But um, so I went to Ferris State and I was able to actually play golf on the golf team and swim on the swim team for four and a half years. Um, wow. And we had... It, at the time, it was the only PGA endorsed golf management program, which means the PGA of America um, endorsed the education. And therefore, when we got out of college, we were, you know, further along in the education process with the PGA of America to become a PGA member. Right. Got it. So, so makes sense. So you, you, you sort of, and, and I, this is impressive. I mean, love that listening to this and how you, I don't think I appreciated before this conversation that you literally worked all aspects of the club. I mean, I didn't appreciate, you know, the, 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 uh, on the course, the bunkers and, you know, the whole, the whole, uh, operation, which is, which is interesting. So, so you, you go to Ferris, you sort of 
get that degree and then sort of take us from there. Where, how do you sort of get involved? Where, where are your first uh, places that you're serving and involved? So at Ferris, um, initially we got, our, our director was a gentleman by the name of Lowell LeClaire, who was, uh, he reminded me a lot of my father. He was very strict. <laughs> and he, early on, <laughs> we had uh, PGM 101, where we talked about the constitution and the bylaws. And we did that for a whole semester. And he used to preach wow. to us, oh, I want you guys, there's three things. If you don't learn anything, these are the three things I want you to learn and take with you in golf. No gambling, no drinking, and no womenizing. So he kept preaching that to us from day one. Well, my, cl my initial class was 60. By the time I graduated, there were only five of us left. Wow. 60 so, to five. <laughs> so wow. you, had, you had to be pretty, um, pretty state, straight and narrow and dedicated to get through it. But Dedicated, um, yeah. What was great about the PGM program, Larry, is that we did six months at, the, at school and then six yep. months in an internship. So we did six months at school, six months in an internship, and we did that for four and a half years. So, I see. so my first internship was at Brookhaven Country Club in Dallas, Texas. And actually, I think it was in what they called Carrollton, but basically Dallas. And I worked at um, Brookhaven, had three golf courses, uh, 54 holes, uh, had a great junior program, you know, Scott Verplank, Brian Watts. Yeah. I was going to say Brookhaven's a pretty notable club. I mean, I know from Verplank and stuff, that's a pretty well-known club nationally. Absolutely. Yeah. They all honed their games there. And then um, it was also the home club of Club Corp. So Bob Dedman Sr. and Jr. Dedman, were members. Right. I was exposed to the corporate side of golf you know, pretty early on in my education process in, in the, within the PGA. So that made an impression on me and, and, and really emphasized um, the necessity to be a good businessman too, besides a golf professional. Yeah. Um, yeah. So during that process, um, so I'm balancing playing on the golf team, on the swim team, the internships. So my second internship was at Brook Lee Country Club, which is in Rochester, and that was uh, a club primarily made up of um, executives from uh, Kodak, Kodak and Xerox. So um, yeah. I was exposed. Uh, the, the, the golf professional there was um, John Calabria, who was a great player in the Western New York section and also in national events. So he was a great he was he made a huge impression on me. We played a lot of golf together. I caddied for him, but uh, I had a great six months working for for John Calabria. Um, from there, I did my uh, next internship at Palm Desert Greens with my dad. So I kind of came, okay. came, came home week. And, um, you know, by that time I had developed a different perspective on the game and the business. And so I was able to uh, hopefully um, help him, uh, you know, prepare himself for the next final 10 years of his career at Palm Desert Greens. So that was a great time. Right. And following that, my last internship was at, um, Champions Golf and Country Club, which was a developer-owned uh, and operated club that um, uh, many of the founders were Walmart, Tyson Foods, Hudson Foods, and J.B. Hunt executives. So that was a great experience. And it was my last internship, which kind of rolled into my first full-time job outside of working for my father. And so I was there for three and a half years. And what was great there, Larry, is my experience of you know working at Livingston for my father and for Sammy Battaglia. When I got there, the course was still under construction. So mm -hmm. um, I, I, I was there. Um, the course was under construction and, and we were you know, prepping to open. And 
um, they put me to work or asked for help on the golf course. I was out mowing greens, sodding greens, sodding, sodding areas that were oh, wow, wow, that needed help. And so during the whole build out and growing time, I was doing that. And the the developer of the club was very impressed that hey, here's this golf professional. He's out there on his hands and knees. He used to tell this story at meetings. He's on his hands and knees, you know, hand sodding the greens. And so as soon as the club opened, I, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to get one of the assistant positions in the golf shop. And what was amazing, the three and a half years that I was there, Larry, I went from really just kind of having a job that would have been like the bag room outside services and then helping on the golf course to when I left, I was the non-member head professional. Wow. And, and wow. I attribute. I attributed a lot of that to, you know, number one, having had the experience, right. And the knowledge, um, but yeah. also had the, the drive and the dedication that, you know, not to be afraid to take on any, any new challenge. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, so it was, it was, that was probably outside of working for my father, that was probably the most influential period of my career because I was exposed to so much at a big level, meaning you're talking about a multi-million dollar development. You're talking about some of the, you know, most successful business people to ever grace the country, right? You know, in that, you know, with Walmart and JB Hunt. Sure. So it was, uh, it was a great time and it was very influential, but, um, you know, towards the end of my time there, I was really anxious to get back out to be close to my parents. And so um, in 1993, um, through a, a mutual friend of ours, John Cummings, who's a PJ professional here in the desert for many, many years. He was at um, Indian Ridge Country Club, which was being developed by Sunrise Corporation, who he had worked for for many years. And so, again, um, he, he, there was really no assistant positions open. There were no head professional positions open. And he had an outside service position. So I took it. You know, I took that chance, right? And again, I started out outside services. The course was again in that development stand or development phase. So I was involved with getting the course open. I had the opportunity to caddy for Arnold Palmer during that when he opened Indian Ridge, which was, which was great. And then, oh, wow. and, I, and then Sunrise also owned a club called Monterey Country Club. So one summer when we closed down Indian Ridge for the, for the summer to get it ready for the season, they tra- I was transferred over to Monterey. And so while at Monterey, I start I started out just in the golf shop covering the, you know, the counter and sales and things like that. And uh, within two years, I became the head professional there. And so I, sp- wow. Wow. I, sp- I spent eight years at uh, Monterey Country Club and, uh, and that's when I, you know, got involved um, with the governance of the PGA. I got on the Southern California Desert Chapter board um, I had a real passion for junior golf. So I was involved with the junior golf committee and, um, you know, then eventually ran for the, uh, the section board as well while I was at Monterey. Yeah. So, so you, so you've had quite a career in PGA on the, on the organizational side. I mean, you know, you, you were right. I mean, um, you know, involved with leadership positions in the Southern California PGA and stuff. And, What's that been like? I mean, that's a whole different aspect of the game. And, you know, obviously you, you have an interest in it. I'm just curious what that's sort of been like for you and what you thought about that. You know, it's been great. I mean, my, my first exposure, I'll never forget it. It was, uh, I went to a, a, an annual um, Western New York section meeting and I can't remember what year it was, but I was definitely, it was definitely in the probably mid to late seventies. 
And I just, it just had such an impact on these group of like-minded individuals in a room. And like my dad said, you know, they would go back and forth and argue and debate. And it was just unbelievable. And, you know, that was, that was, it was just like, these guys were so passionate about their business and about the game. Yeah. And, yeah. and they had a national body, but this was the local chapter and, and actually local section for, for Western New York, which was a small section compared to others. And so that had a huge impact on me wanting to get involved with governance uh, in my first year and all throughout my career at, at um, Ferris State, you know, I was involved with the uh, Professional Golf Management Student Association, ran tournaments for them, served on their board, was an officer as well. So that's kind of where I got the taste of it. And then as soon as I got to the Palm Desert, you know, very quickly got involved in the desert chapter for eight years, uh, ran for the section board. And here's another great uh, example of how golf is so great at, you know, establishing and developing relationships is I met um, Jack Kaplan, who's a former president and member of Brentwood Country Club. Right, right. We've, we recently lost Jack in the last couple of years. But, um, you know, I met Jack through my involvement with the Southern California PGA. Jack was a past president of the um, Southern California Golf Association, as well as the California Golf Association. So he and I um, made a great relationship with his wife, Jerry. Jerry's still with us and at Brentwood. And when Brentwood Country Club's position came open in the, um, in the year 2000, 2001, uh, Jack encouraged me to, to take a look at it. He felt that, you know, I would be a good fit. And um, so when that opportunity arose, I, I went for it and was fortunate enough to be at Brentwood Country Club for uh, 20 years as a director of golf and now uh, heading, finishing my first year as assistant general manager. Right. No, that, that is great. That is great. Um, and the Southern California PGA, I mean, that's a pretty darn big section to be president of, right? I mean, that, that had to be take up a lot of, that was a significant responsibility, I would think, right? And you've got a lot of strong-willed folks in that group. <laughs> we do. We do. And, um, you know, it was great. I mean, you know, the, the Southern California section was while I was president was the second largest section in the, in the, of the 41, uh, the Carolinas, which included North and South Carolina was the largest. And then we were second and then, but we were just Southern California. It didn't include Northern California. It didn't include Arizona. Right. right. A lot of the sections right. include multiple States. So we, we right. were the largest and, um, and we were also the most progressive, meaning um, we did a lot of things being on the West Coast. We did a lot of things that we we kind of had to take care of ourselves, so to speak, compared to yep. the home office and all the, the sections up and down the eastern seaboard. So we had some great leaders such as Pat Riley and um, and uh, Warren Smith and some great, great, great um, golf professionals and past presidents. But we were fortunate enough that we um, we owned the. Um, the PGA uh, golf show on the West coast. And uh, it started, that started down in orange County, uh, went to long beach and then Anaheim and then Las Vegas. And then in the late nineties, we sold that show to the PGA of America for uh, $17 million. And we took that money, some reserves, and we built the Southern California PGA golf course in Beaumont. And we built that in 99, 2000, and then uh, 2001, with the uh, 9-11, we took a big hit there. Um, just golf in general started to slow down at that point. And we ended up uh, selling those courses in 2008. But, um, you know, 
I've, I've gotten so much more out of the govern being involved with governance and committees and networking. It's just phenomenal because the network of people and, and clubs that I can reach out to or contact, I mean, I've just learned so much. And so I've always been the same way, meaning if somebody, you know, needs help or somebody needs assistance, I'm always there for them. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, this has been great. I know I've, I've, you guys have been so generous to your time. I was close to an hour, but this is fantastic. And hearing about, you know, um, I mean, Patrick, obviously you and I have known each other for a while, but hearing your dad and talk about his history in the game is just fantastic. And um, uh, you couldn't have had a better mentor than the fellow sitting to your left, I'm sure. I can just tell from the way he's talked through and um, uh, that's so cool that you followed in his footsteps like that. I really think it's neat. Yeah. And, and so that's, and also that's where a lot of my passions come to make the, the PGA better, you know, cause I've seen, right. I've been involved with it and I've seen, you know, those that have come before us and, you know, a lot of them have struggled and a lot of times they get left behind. Right. So, um, right. you know, the Eric is a, a, a big, strong, um, association, both financially and influentially. And so, you know, I, I'm a big advocate for um, those that, um, you know, maybe don't work at the top clubs or don't have the, the, yeah. the fortune of, of doing very well. And so I've always been a big advocate for that. And I hold our, our association in, in high standards. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's it's um, and, and then that's so great. Um, and that's what's and it, that's what's great about the game, too. Right. It's not just the Oak Hills and Luff. It's it's all the municipal facilities, it's, you know, it's everything. And, and um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, that's terrific. Um, well, guys, this has been fantastic. Um, I really have loved talking to you. Joe, I, one of these days, I'm going to have to see your library. I'm it's probably dwarfs mine, I can tell, but uh, your golf library, but um, this has been so great talking to you. And I, I just love your passion uh, I can still hear it in your voice and stuff. Um, you know, after all these years still for the game of golf, it's great to hear. I hope we get to meet you sometime and come out to the desert and play at Indian Wells where I'm working. We'll fix you up. I, I will, I would love to do that. One of these days I will definitely do. I'm actually, I should have a little more time. I'm sort of retiring from the law business, um, after 35 years and going to actually spend some more time with the SCGA um and get a little more involved in golf so i'm sure i'll get out there and i'll definitely try to connect with you when i do thank you yeah and larry okay I just great guys yeah, yeah i just want to say something you know obviously um you know jack kaplan had a huge influence on me um you know as a yeah. as a man in, in the governance and we obviously had sid title another brentwood member and i i think you're the yeah. type of guy that, that clubs need um you, your your passion for the game and uh, respect for the game. Um, you know, you're always thinking what's in the best interest of the game, what's in the best interest of the member. So I think, you know, Jack Kaplan, Sid Title would be really proud to call you a fellow member. And I think, you know, obviously congratulations on being elected to the Brentwood board. And I'm really excited to see your involvement within not just the club, but also the SCGA and hopefully the USJ someday as well. I, I appreciate that. And Patrick, and I want to thank you for sort of connecting me with uh you know, Mark Myers and, you know, some of the other folks, I mean, you are, um, your son, Joe knows everyone. Um, and he's been just incredibly generous with, um, connecting me with some folks and helping me get more involved with the SCGA. So I thank you for that, Patrick, and I'm going to look forward to sort of, um, pushing forward on that in the years to come. Great. 
Guys, thanks very much. Uh, talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Yeah.